Amen. Well, if you have a, a, a Bible with you, you can open to Exodus chapter 30. We're going to continue our study through the uh, Old Testament uh, book of Exodus this morning. And uh, I know, you know, we got some new lights uh, on the stage. Uh, and someone from first service said, is that why I wore a white shirt? Because it's just like they wish they brought sunglasses or something. to. Uh, so... Forgive me if I'm, you know, like, uh, I didn't mean to do that. But uh, so, but we're excited. Uh, John Harden and Hogern uh, worked on new speakers and lights. So uh, really thankful for all, all their work, um, uh, improving our, our worship space together. Um, we are, uh, we're going to look at a passage from Exodus 30 this morning. If you're visiting with us, uh, we're gonna, this, as I read this passage, you might say, you know, this is obscure passage from the book of Exodus and, you know, why are we studying this in Bellingham in 2019? And the reason for that, we are a church that believes in teaching the whole counsel of God. Every passage of the Bible, we don't skip any passages, even if they're strange or weird. And so uh, this is one of those passages. And every time we dig into it, we find that God's truth always has application for our lives and for our community. And so um, this is uh, the context for Exodus and Exodus 30, this passage, uh, I'll talk about as we go through the teaching together this morning. So uh, let's hear the word of God in the, uh, just these six verses, Exodus 30, uh, verse 11 to 16. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel... Then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering the rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall uh, take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord, so as to make atonement for your lives. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Holy Father in heaven, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and open your word for us. Give us minds to understand these words. Give us hearts that would respond uh, to your grace with faith, to your commands for us with obedience. And so uh, we uh, open our minds and our hearts to you. Give us ears to hear. Uh, we ask in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, our topic this morning is uh, the topic of humility, uh, which is such an important part of the Christian life. And I know for some of you, when you maybe you saw the title of that passage and and the, the title of the sermon is Humility, and then I read the passage, you're like, how is this passage about humility? Well, we're going to get to that as we, as we get through the sermon. But I want to begin by first saying that, you know, one of the main threads of the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, is what Peter Lightheart, Peter Lightheart is a theologian who has called the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, a pedagogy of weakness. 
a pedagogy of weakness. It's a training. It's a school in weakness is what the Old Testament law was. And actually, if you go to the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul talks about the Old Testament law, that's what he says. He's like a teacher. It's like a guardian or schoolmaster that's training. Like God's people were like this child. And the law was training them. And Peter Lightheart says, what was it training them in? It was training them in weakness. And, you know, in the ancient world, every religion, every leader, every nation was about power. You know, maybe that's true still in our day. But the pagan religions of the ancient world, they were all about getting rich, about how you're going to defeat your enemies in battle. And the kingdoms of the ancient world, they were violent, they were merciless. They were always kind of flexing their muscles at each other to say, like, which nations are greater and kind of threatening each other all the time. And so what the Lord does, the Lord chooses this one nation, Israel, who's not significant. They're not very strong. They're not very big. And he takes them and he says, I'm going to put you in this little strip of land in Palestine. And, you know, Palestine is at the crossroads of three continents, of, of Asia, Africa, and Europe. So all the trade routes are going to pass through this one piece of land. He's like, I'm going to put you in center stage in the midst of all these nations. And uh, you're going to be a people that are not trained in strength. You're a people trained in weakness. And uh, they would be people who didn't trust in their own flesh, but they trusted in the Lord. And they found that the Lord was powerful and that our flesh actually had quite a lot of limits to it. And so, uh, so the Lord has, gives them a training in weakness. And so, for example, you know, the central kind of Old Testament sign in the Old Testament for the people of Israel that marked the people of Israel is they took all the eight-day-old boys and they would circumcise the eight-day-old boys. And that was kind of what marked you as an Israelite. And the reason for that is because, you know, the male member, the phallus, was one of the primary signs of power in the ancient world. You know, people made statues and worshiped statues, you know, because the phallus was a, a sign of, of potency and nationality and my family and my clan and my strength and all these things. And God says, I'm going to cut the male flesh. And, and I'm, this is a mark of weakness, is a resistance against that kind of power and potency. And so it was a training in weakness. Well, I think this passage that we're looking at today uh, it, it, um, about the, the census tax is another example of how the Lord was training his people to embrace weakness and to trust in him. And so it's a passage about weakness. It's a passage about, a passage about humility. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about the important Christian virtue of humility. And, you know, Peter Kreef, the, the Christian philosopher, says that love is the fruit of the Christian life. Humility is the roots. It's the foundational for our, our life together. And so uh, what is humility? I want to point out three important answers to that from this passage. Uh, what does the law of Moses teach about humility? I'm going to point out three things as we go along this morning. So what can we learn about humility? The first thing is this. Humility resists visionary dreaming. Humility resists visionary dreaming. And what I mean by that, you can see it in verse 11, that first verse there where it says, the Lord said to Moses, when you take this census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among, the, among them when you number them. Now what this verse is is a warning that if you take a census of all the people of Israel, you count all the people of Israel, you better watch out because a plague might come upon you. And so you have to give this offering so that, you know, apparently in the ancient world, taking a a census was a dangerous business. 
And in fact, actually, the most famous census in the, in the Old Testament is in the end of 2 Samuel, King David gets an idea that he's going to count all the people of Israel. And his, like, the commander of his army, Joab, who's, like, pretty hard-headed, ambitious, man of the world, says, you're going to do what? You're going to, no, do not take a census. This is a bad idea. Warns him, I'm against this. And David says, no, I want the people counted. And so they go out and they count all the people. And as soon as it's done, David's struck in his heart. And he says, that was a bad idea. I shouldn't have done that. It was foolish. And what happens? A plague comes upon, upon the people. And you might wonder, like, what's the big deal about a census, about counting, uh, about counting the people? Well, why does a king want to count his people? There's only two reasons. He either wants to tax them, he wants to get their money, and he's got a plan with that money, or he wants to build an army, and he's got a plan for that army. And the reason there's a warning about censuses is because any king or ruler who wants to, start, wants to count his people likely has a spirit of wanting to be great stirring inside of him. He has a vision. He's got a vision of the things he wants to build. He's got a vision for the lands he wants to conquer. And censuses, censuses are about the visionary dreams of a leader. And so the Lord builds a tax into these censuses that slow the people down. Check your pride. They were to be slow to go to war. They were to be slow to, war, uh, to build an army. And this was a national ritual that trained the whole people of Israel in humility. God's law resists this kind of visionary dreaming because it is often motivated by the pride of the leader. And, you know, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about this. Uh, Bonhoeffer was a theologian in, uh, under the Nazis. He was actually martyred in a concentration camp two weeks before the Allies came to liberate his concentration camp. And in one of his most famous books, you know, he writes about visionary leaders because it, what was happening in Germany under the Nazis, the visionary leader was, of course, Hitler, who had captured the emotional life of a whole nation. And this is what Bonhoeffer says. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. That's why he's taxing everyone and forming an army. It's because he demands that his vision be realized. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. Censuses are about the pride of wanting to be great. And so the virtue of humility is suspicious of visionary dreaming because it is often tied to our desire to make a name for ourselves and to make our name great. Now, if you've been a part of Christ Church, if you know me, you might say, you know, sorry to tell you, Nate, you're kind of a visionary dreamer. You know, you always have some idea of something we want to do or something you want to build. And you might say, you know, don't communities like ours, don't we need visionary leaders? You know, uh, Proverbs says, where there is no vision, the people perish. You know, isn't it good for people? And, you know, if we're too humble, aren't we going to lose some of our ambition to, like, make an impact on the world and building? There are things that need to be done. There's parts of the world that need to be changed don't we need visionary leadership to, to do that important work? And so that leads to our second point that's paired with humility resists visionary dreaming, but also humility acts 
out of a sense of duty. Humility acts out of a sense of duty. And by duty, you know, I don't mean kind of mindlessly doing what you're told like a robot. Uh, Humility does, though, embrace the responsibilities of duty. You know, duty to God, duty to people, duty to the church, duty to family. Duty is a servant-hearted posture. And the reason this is important because, you know, there are two potential motivations for having ambition or having a vision, right? You know, on the one hand, your, your, your motivation could be like, I, I want to be great. I want to feel like I accomplished something. And if I built this thing, wouldn't I be impressive? On the other hand, there's another motivation that says, you know what? There is a problem. Someone needs to do this work. There is important work that needs to be done. And if I'm willing to go do it. I'm willing to take responsibility for that. And these are two different motivations that actually both create leadership, both gather people together, both build and change things. But one says, I want to be served. And the other says, I want to serve others. And uh, what you see in this passage is that when it comes time for the Israelites to form an army, there are times for the Israelites to form an army. Actually, you know the book of Numbers? You know why it's called Numbers? Numbers. Numbers one is a census where they count all the soldiers because they're going to go into the promised land. God called them to go into the promised land. So there are times to to take a census. But what this passage tells us is that the army that was formed was voluntary. The Israelite armies were supposed to be voluntary. Look at what it says in verse 13. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. What this verse is describing is how you join the army. And the People serve in the army out of a sense of duty. They say, you know what? I believe in the cause of this army. I believe why we're going to war, and I'm willing to volunteer. And not only volunteer, I'll actually pay to be in the army. I'm not going to be paid to be in the army. I will pay for my opportunity to do my duty. Now, you might read that and say, how do you, how do you see that this is about an army? And, you know, one thing you'll notice in verse 13, how it says, each one who is numbered. Literally, in Hebrew, that says, each one who crosses over to the one who is mustered. You might be like, each one who, what does that mean? Well, what it's describing is how this census took place. So what you'd have is when they're going to go count all the soldiers, all the people, men who are 20 years and older, they'd come to a village, and there'd be this commander who's, you know, dressed, he's mustered for battle, you know, with his, with his you know, crew. And they'd come, and all the men of the village would come, and they'd draw a line in the sand, and they'd say, if you want to join the army, you cross over and join with those who are mustered, and you join the army. And it's this, like, symbolic act. And when you do that, you have to bring with you this offering where you pay and bring an offering to the Lord in order to be a part of the army. And what this uh, says is that the whole thing that's motivating this army is not the visionary ambitions of a dictator, but a sense of duty from the people of God. They act from a sense of this is something that needs to be done and I'm willing to go do it. Now, I think in the, you know, Christian community, you know, maybe even some of you, when I say the word duty, 
you know, you're kind of resistant to that word duty. And, and I was actually, I was uh, talking with Dan Pritchett this, this week as a member of our church. And I was working on this. I said, hey, Dan, what do you, you know, what do you think of the word duty when I say my second point is like humility is dutiful. And, you know, he had a number of thoughts about it. One of the things that he said, though, is, you know, in the Christian community, like, there's so much that the church has to do. You know, we have to worship, and we need greeters, and we need setup, and we need home groups, and we need discipleship groups, and we need to evangelize, and we need to care for the poor, and we need to have music. We need, and you're just like, wow, it's like the amount of duty and the things that the church is called to be in the world, it's just like, and I have to do, if I have a sense of duty and responsibility, I have to do all those things, duty will just like overwhelm me and crush me, and then I'm not going to do any of them because I'm just going to run away and don't use that word duty around me. Well, you know, it's interesting when you look in the Mosaic law about how Israel's army is formed, it's in Deuteronomy 20, and it's describing when a large army is coming against the Israelites, and it specifically says an army that's larger than the Israelite army. And the Lord says, okay, you're going to form this army, but there's a number of people who don't have to be in the army. So you've got this army, and they say, now, if you just built your house, go enjoy your house. Go hang out in your house. And you're like, okay, that's some people away from the army. And then he said, you know, if you just planted a field and you haven't gotten to cook the vegetables and enjoy the blessing of your field, go enjoy the vegetables. You know, enjoy the fruit of your field. And then it says you just got married. You love your wife. You know, it's your first year of marriage. Don't go to war. Enjoy your wife. And, and like, you're thinking this is, our army's already smaller than the other team's army. And now it's just getting smaller. And then there's a fourth thing. And it says also, by the way, if you're a coward and you're kind of faint-hearted, you don't have to go either. You know, everyone, you're going to make everyone scared or you're going to get someone hurt. And so, and there's just a tenderness towards the, the cowardly. And the Lord's like, it's all right. Don't, don't go to battle. And you think about that. Why does the Lord do that? Why does he let all these people just go enjoy the blessings of their life before they go do their duty? Because when they have enjoyed the blessing of God's land and God's people, then they're going to know what they're fighting for. Right? And then they're going to say, you know what? I love living among God's people. and I want to fight for this. And then they have a voluntary desire to go do that. And so what God says you have to receive his grace. You have to enjoy his grace before you can go do your duty. And that ordering is crucial. These are the things we're fighting for. If we haven't enjoyed God's grace, then we don't know what we're fighting for. That's the point of the whole war. It is not duty at the expense of enjoying the simple goodness of God's blessing, but out of a desire to secure that blessing for all of God's people. And so you can imagine what this kind of national ritual was. You know, the drawing of the lines and people come and they bring their offering. And it just trains the whole people in humility. It slows down the visionary ambitions of kings and rulers. And it calls people to voluntarily serve out of a sense of duty. And not like robots. But because I've enjoyed my land, I've enjoyed my home, I've enjoyed my wife, and I want to fight for them because I believe in those things. And I, um, everyday pleasures of home, marriage, fruits and vegetables are more important, the simple pleasures are more important than the visionary dreams of the kings and the rulers. That ordering is crucial. And actually, you know, another thing that I just read recently, C.S. Lewis, I read an essay by C.S. Lewis called The Poison of Subjectivism. And it's an essay where he talks about what happens when a society starts saying, you know, we don't believe in traditional ethics or morals anymore. We're going to invent our own morals and ethics. And he says, guess who really starts shaping the morals and ethics of the people? The visionary leaders. 
And they get to make up their own ethics. This is what, and this is what he says. This is the final paragraph of that essay. He says, while we believe that good is something to be invented, you know, we make up our own morals. We demand of our rulers such qualities as vision, dynamism, creativity, and the like. If we returned to the objective view, we should demand qualities much rarer and much more beneficial. Virtue, knowledge, diligence, and skill. Vision is for sale or claims to be for sale everywhere. But give me a man who will do a day's work for a day's pay. Who will refuse bribes. Who will not make up his facts. And who has learned to do his job well. That's the humility. That's the duty of humility. And so humility does not prohibit ambition and building and dreaming, but it's constantly pressing the question, what's your motivation? Is it because I want to be great and make a name for myself, or is it something needs to be done and I'm willing to go do it? Or as Pascal puts it, I love this, this from his uh, pensées, do small things as if they're great because of Jesus Christ. Do great things as if they're small because of Jesus Christ. So it's pretty simple. Humility is suspicious of grand visionary dreams and instead gives itself to the dutiful service of others. And so the question is, how do you become a person like that? How do we as a community be a, a people clothed with humility? Well, that's our final point, is that humility comes from standing before God. Standing before God is what creates humility. And, you know, the only thing that sobers the proud human heart is when a human being is faced with God himself. And when we say that there is no God, that's when we start thinking, well, there's no God. Maybe I'll be the God. Maybe I'm better than everyone else and I can get people to serve me and my plans and, and I can use other people. And, uh, and, but when we stand before God, we see our sin, our finiteness, our weakness, our frailty, and we begin to see ourselves rightly. And what this passage does is it brings together two things that standing before God helps us to realize. That standing before God, we are all equal. And standing before God, we are all loved. That's what standing before God does. It shows us that we're all equal and that we're all loved. So I want to talk about each of those. First, standing before God, we are all equal. And you'll notice that spirit in this passage you know, when the soldiers volunteer for the army and they bring their offering to the Lord, it says in verse 15, the rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. The rich and the poor bring the same offering. And this is an important verse that uh, talks about the classless nature of Israelite society. God envisioned that, that there would not be a class system. And so there were clearly in Israel people who had more money than other people, but you could not buy kind of a privileged position in the army by, well, I'm going to give a bigger offering and maybe, you know, I could get a safe spot where I'm not going to get injured. No, everyone in the army is exactly the same. And uh, they all brought a half shekel. Half shekel is a fifth of an ounce of silver, which was not a ton of money, but it was not a trivial amount of money either. And there's a repeated theme in the Bible that the Lord is impartial. 
The Lord sees all people. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how educated you are. It, uh, it doesn't matter your ethnicity. If you're a man or a woman, God, when you stand before the Lord, everyone is equal. And he was training his people to see each other that way, say no one boasts in the presence of the Lord. No one has an ego or arrogance in the presence of the Lord. And, and then we begin to see each other as equals that way. And I think that we all have ways that we judge and evaluate each other and ourselves, you know, by our accomplishments or how much money we have or how good looking we are or how, you know, uh, how popular we are, whatever it is. But before the face of God, all of that becomes trivial. Before the face of God, the proud are brought low and the humble are raised up and we are equal. And I think, you know, this speaks to the, the question of leadership that I was talking about earlier. You know, um, I, I was listening to a podcast recently, but Brian Koppelman has a podcast. I don't know if you know Brian Koppelman. He's like an HBO director. And he interviews all these actors and different artists and stuff like that. And he's a really great interviewer. But there was one where he was interviewing Dave Ramsey. who Dave Ramsey's the financial radio talk show guy who's an evangelical Christian. And it was really interesting because... At the beginning of this interview, Brian Koppelman says, you know, I know you're evangelical. I'm not like that at all. I don't believe any of that, but I love listening to your talk show. And at one point in the interview, he says to him, you know, you have the third largest talk show in the country. It's like 10 million people listening to you. You've had 4 million people who have gone through your class. And, uh, you know, it's a huge success. Did you picture all that? Could you envision all of that before you were building this huge, you know, company and this huge amount of influence. And Dave Ramsey says, I couldn't picture any of that. Absolutely not. All I knew was that if I could have someone sit down across the table from me, I could really help them with their finances. I just thought, what a beautiful picture. You know, sitting across a table is just a, such a sense of equality, and it's, it's one-on-one. And all he's really done is done that a bunch of times. And, and you know, that's why I, don't, I just started listening to his radio show a little bit, and that's one of the things I was so impressed with. You know, people call, and when you're talking about your debt and your money, there's all kinds of shame, and you got some people who are just like, yeah, I've saved up all this money. I retired when I was 30, and these people are like, oh, I'm way in debt, and I've got credit cards going crazy. And he treats every person with dignity and listens to them, and hears their story. And I, I think uh, that kind of sense of we are all equal only happens when we live our lives before the face of God. And so humility is not that I have to have such a low view of myself and beat myself up all the time. It's as one author puts it, that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility's attention is not fixed on itself, but on God and his world and other people. And when our gaze is upon God and not ourselves, we discover that it's not simply that standing before God we are all equal, but a second thing, that standing before God we are all loved. And, uh, you know, as we've been reading through the book of Exodus, this, this passage comes a little bit out of nowhere. You know, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've been talking about the tabernacle. And, you know, the story of Exodus is the Israelites were slaves in Egypt and God liberates them from slavery and now they're wandering around in the wilderness and they all live in tents and God says, okay, I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments. I'm going to give you a law about how to live with one another and then I'm going to come live with you and so you build me a tent so I can live with, you know, and you, you try to pack up your tent, you pack up my tent and, we, and I go follow with you and I'm going to live with my people. 
And so we've been reading about the instructions about the building of this tent. And then out of nowhere, there's this like, and by the way, when you have a census, you should have, everyone should bring an offering. And you're like, this kind of uh, comes out of nowhere. But if you go later in Exodus, Exodus 38, when they actually build the tent, there are these silver pillars that are a part of the, uh, these foundations for these pillars that are a part of the tabernacle. And it says the silver comes from this offering when you form an army and you have this census. And uh, that's why it says here in, in verse 16, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting. It's going to be used to build the tent. That it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. And so this half shekel you bring ends up being a part of God's house. And it's like that little bit of silver on the wall, it's like has your name on it. You know, it's like almost like, and, and God, when he sees the silver, he remembers the person who brought that offering. And especially they're off at war. And so they're like, wow, I'm glad my name is in God's house while I'm off at war. He's thinking about me and, and like protecting me and caring for his, caring for his army. And um, this offering is a s- small picture of the greater offering, the greater census tax, which is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Jesus is our half shekel. What offering do we bring to the Lord when we join his army, when we join his service? Who does both the rich and the poor come before God with? He is all we have. The rich and the poor both come with Jesus. He's the one offering that we have. And his blood on the cross is what protects us from the plague and from God's wrath against human pride. And he is the one who is now in God's heavenly tabernacle bearing our name before the Lord so that we are remembered and that he protects us and he walks with us. It is the love of Christ is the only thing that creates humility. And the question for us this morning, do we have that love in our life? If you're here and you are not a Christian, And you wonder, what is the Christian life like? What does it mean to be a Christian? This is it. We believe that we are sinners, and we are by nature arrogant in our hearts. We have egos. We want to boast before the Lord. We want to be better than other people. And then often we feel worse than other people. But Jesus has paid the ransom for our sin with his own blood so that we can stand before God accepted and loved and remembered, not because of what we have done, not because of our visions, not because of our accomplishments, or even because, or because of who we are, but because of who he is and what he's done. And because of his vision, he's the only king that can be trusted with a vision for our mission. And when we have been loved like that, there is no one that we can look down on. There is no one we can despise. Not even ourselves. We can't look down on ourselves. We can't despise ourselves. And uh, I'm no better. I'm no worse because I stand before God equal and loved. God's word calls each of us today to rest in that love that makes the proud heart humble. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you as we read your law. I so rich with wisdom and uh, 
that you have a vision for an, a kingdom, a nation of the humble, a nation of the weak who rely not on their own flesh, but trust in your grace. And so, Lord, uh, we pray uh, that you would teach us to enjoy the abundance of your grace so that we might voluntarily offer our lives to you in service because we love your kingdom. And that you would uh, appoint each one of us to the place of responsibility and duty that you call us to. And that we would serve you before your face. That uh, we would see all people as equal. And that we would see each other as loved by Christ perfectly. Who brings our names to remembrance before you in the heavenly tabernacle now. What hope, what grace we ask in Christ's name. Amen.